This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Play Script Direct Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located in the heart of Times Square, where the Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway Theatre all meet to bring the magic of that is theatre. That then goes out across the country, and that which is very, very good in the resident theatres and in the regional theatres come back into New York to help enhance the Broadway theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theater Wing, and we are known for our Tony Awards, but that is just a part of the wing. We started a long, long time ago with a stage door canteen, and out of that grew the programs that we continue to do this very day. We send live professional theater to hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers. We bring theater to Saturday in a program called Saturday Theater for Children at the public schools in the elementary school age. It's a wonderful thing to see young children line up to go to the theater. They've made a commitment for Saturday mornings to see live theater. No child is turned away, but they pay for a ticket, just like they do when they go to real theater. And that, we hope, will provide the program for them, the habit of going to the theater. I want to go back one minute to the Tony Awards. It is named after a woman named Antoinette Perry, an honor of Antoinette Perry, who believed in training and being prepared for the theater. It is given in recognition of achieving the degree of excellence in the craft of theater, not for the longest run and not because it had a great review, but because it was really good theater and one had to go to the theater in order to be a rounded, fulfilled person. You know, New York theater is an exciting place to be, and every year millions of people come to New York City. The theater is the magnet, and they come from all over the world. And so it is only fitting that these seminars, which is an outgrowth of the Wing School, come to you from New York City. We've brought two seminars on the performance, and today's seminar is on the playwright-director. This brings the magic to you. This, these are the words and the people that direct the words to you. On our panel today is a most distinguished group of people. All of them are knowledgeable in their field. They're here to share and explain their roles in the theater to you. To help do that are co-moderators, Jean Dalrymple, 
was a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing, has been an author and a director, and George White, who is president of the O'Neill Center in Waterford, Connecticut. The O'Neill has brought people to theatre, people to Russia, to China, and he is here today to co-moderate with Gene and to introduce the panel to you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Isabel. Uh, I will start by introducing the gentleman on my right. Uh, the first uh, person is Tony Giordano, who is the director of Off-Broadway's About Time and Handy Dandy. Uh, next to him is Vanel Benares, got it right, uh, who is the <laughs> creator and co-star of Furthermore, Off-Broadway. And my immediate right is Lonnie Price, who is the director of the off-Broadway production of The Rothschilds. And then my pleasure to my left is Jean, who will introduce the other gentleman. Yes, way down there is wonderful David Levine, who is the executive director of the Dramatists Guild, a very important organization for playwrights, as you can well imagine. We couldn't do without it. Um, next to him is John Driver, who is the author of the book and lyrics of Broadway's Shogun, which is coming in very soon. Um, and then we have Tom Cole, a darling playwright who did a beautiful play that is now off-Broadway called About Time, and the star of it was with us yesterday. Um, and then we have right here a very famous man, uh, very famous. Not Sheldon. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, of course, is the lyricist of Off-Broadway's The Rothschilds, which is a big, big hit. Did I say your name? Sheldon Harnick? Yes. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to say it twice. No, no, no. <laughs> so we can get it. Right. Well, I'd, I'd if I may, like to, to, to start uh, with, uh, uh, perhaps since uh, I guess it's my bent to start with, with playwrights uh, right. first, uh, uh, and then, then move to directors, if, if that's all right. And perhaps uh, start by, by uh, learning a little bit about how they all got started, and uh, when they first started having these uh, strange afflictions <laughs> called <laughs> creative urges. Uh, Fresnel, how about you? Uh, how did you get going? And uh, I started in, in college, actually. I went to Xavier University in New Orleans. I was born and raised in New Orleans. And uh, there was no department, well, we had a theater department, but there was no playwriting courses. So they said, well, why don't you read on playwriting and try your hand at it, and we'll give you independent uh, study courses, credit for them. So they gave me three hours for playwriting and three hours for directing. And it sort of started um, the possibility. I also got the box office at the time. Uh, for a student, that was great. Um, and uh, the last two years that I was in college, uh, the entire semester was aimed at directing and writing and sometimes being in uh, a performance. So basically, it was through academics. What okay. was your first play that you really finished? The first play was uh, a thing called Family Bust. And it was a portrait of a Creole family as well as them finding their son with a stick of marijuana. 
So the bust had two words to it. <laughs> and it was very popular at the time with the students. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the time. Yes. <laughs> the seventies. Did it go further? No, no. In fact, the first no. piece that I actually came up to New York with was One More Time, which oh, I had written and right. directed, and I was also in that. Oh, well, that was a wonderful one. Great. Yeah, it was fun, <laughs> really. How about right next to him? Well, Tony, Lonnie, uh, Lonnie no, is a, a but I, well, let's see, uh, Tom, why don't you uh, start? I'm, I'm saving lyricists purposely, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Tom, how about, yeah. Saving the best for last. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would say I'm a late bloomer, except I haven't bloomed yet. Maybe retarded is the word, but <laughs> I was not in theater early at all, and uh, I'm still learning and uh, excited to be uh, finding my way in theater, but I uh, was a filmmaker, and I wrote fiction, and I uh, did some teaching. And I, there was a, I lived in Boston. There was a little tiny theater company, Theater Company of Boston. David Wheeler was director. And it was just a crazy company. We never had a theater to play in, for, for example. I was a trustee of it. And my friends were there. And Dustin Hoffman began there. And um, Al Pacino used to act. All kinds of good people. Blythe Danner. And it was collapsing. And um, they had $1,000 left from a grant. And I was interested in a subject uh, for a film. that became the play Medal of Honor Rag eventually. But it was about a... Uh, a tragic story of a black, anguished black hero from Vietnam. It was very early after, after the Vietnam War. And I couldn't get anywhere with it as a film, and the theater had $1,000 left over. They said, well, we'll give you the $1,000, then we're going to quit. <laughs> and you do, do it into a play. And I had no idea how to write a play. I love I watching them. I love having friends in theater. And I started to write something that had all kinds of flashy stuff, with characters all over the place, and light, and mothers, and uh, tanks, and heroes, and all that was boring. And finally, I was left with two characters. And I thought, this is hopeless, but I, they did a stage reading of the first few lines of this play. Uh, as I said, it was my early 30s, and, and the audience started to laugh a bit over some strange lines, and I was hooked, and that's it. It was the people in the audience who caught me. It was so much mm -hmm. more uh, vital than doing filmmaking, which I still do, but there's nothing like the people out there. Mm -hmm. Well, you were a trustee, so where did, where did you... Uh, why were you a trustee? I think that's that. <laughs> well, that, uh, there's a curious theater, and the, the trustees were chosen if, if they were broke. You had to be broke. <laughs> then you could be a trustee. <laughs> David Wheeler. But we were, we were all friends of David Wheeler, the eccentric director. Okay. Uh, Jean, do you? Well, I'd like to, to hear from Sheldon. And, you know, he's, uh, he knows more about it than anybody, I think. <laughs> no, while I was listening to these gentlemen, I was just realizing that it's, uh, it's kind of astonishing that I wound up doing what I do because I'm from Chicago, from a family with almost no theatrical background and almost no interest in the theater except for one renegade uncle who was in a Gilbert and Sullivan company and did some directing. But I always liked writing doggerel and uh, <laughs> rather than trace uh, how one thing led to another. Everything came into focus when I went to Northwestern University. I came out of the Army knowing or thinking I wanted to be a violinist. I went to Northwestern uh, because they had a superb violin teacher I wanted to study with, and also because they had a big annual student review, which was uh, reviewed by all the critics in Chicago. Northwestern, of course, is right outside mm -hmm. of Chicago. So while I was there, I, start, I got interested in theater, and I began to see plays at the University Playhouse. Uh, it was just a revelation to me. 
uh, plays and musicals. They did a Three Penny Opera, they, you know, which was mm -hmm. a revelation. And um, I just kept at it. I came to New York, resolved either to be a lyricist or possibly to be uh, a guide at the UN. I <laughs> and I thought it was more likely that I'd wind up either as a guide or the other fallback position I had was uh, to be a librarian because I was very good with the alphabet. <laughs> but uh, uh, one thing led to another. It was the most important thing, as you said, I, I still feel like I'm learning the most important thing was to be in a city where there was so much theater, and I was able to catch up. It was like seeing the layers of uh, architecture uh, become dug up in front of me. My wife was in summer stock, and I would go see shows that I'd heard about all my life and I'd never seen, shows from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. So it was a constant education, and then trying to see what I had to say to continue this tradition that I was part of. And what was the first time, and what was the name of the one that was the first one? Well, um, my debut on Broadway was one song in a show called New Faces of 1952. I had written this song out of great anger, and of, so of course it was very funny. Um, <laughs> it was a song called The Boston Begin. Uh, it was sung by a performer named Alice Ghostly, and it was extremely well received, and for the next six months, I got calls from all kinds of girls who wanted a song like Boston Begin, which is not what I wanted to do with my <laughs> life. But that was my debut, a New Faces of 52. And then what did you do? Um, one of the most important things for me was that I, I met with one of my heroes, a lyricist named E.Y. Harburg, Yip Harburg. Oh, yes. And Yip said that there were many more talented, capable theater composers than there were lyricists. At the time, I was doing my own music, and he said I could facilitate my career if I would uh, work with other people, other composers, as well as myself. And that turned out to be true. And along the way, I met Jerry Bach, and our collaboration was so felicitous that we stayed together for about 15 years. Yes. What was, the, what was the first one? Was that uh, Fiorello, or was it before that? Or? No, I, I say our, our collaboration was felicitous, but you wouldn't have known it from our first show, which was a big flop called The Body Beautiful, back in 1956. <laughs> but theatre to me, or, or at least a career, is, is like uh, the image I have is of uh, high-wire people on trapezes, that you, you do something, you let go, you don't know where you're going to land, and if you're lucky, your hands grab something and you go forward. Uh, in this case, the hand grabbing was that at the opening night of The Body Beautiful, in the audience was Harold Prince. And although he had many reservations about the show, he liked what Jerry Bach and I did, and not too long after that, he offered us uh, the chance to write the score for Fiorello, which was yeah. a hit, and so I became somebody who was known. I was able to write a hit so I could be hired. <laughs> it was wonderful for Fiorello. John, I'd, uh, you're uh, coming in shortly with, or are any minute with, with a, a new show. What's your background? Well, it's interesting. It's almost identical to Sheldon in many, many ways. Uh, I'm, from I'm from from Chicago myself, and Northwestern was my alma mater. And in fact, I, as a student, performed material that Sheldon wrote <laughs> when he was in college at Northwestern. Uh, in the WAMU show, the same show that you were talking about. And I was, I, like him, was a, a student who had almost no uh, family theatrical background. I was a kid who just fell in love with it, doing The King and the King and I my senior year in high school. And I said, 
no physics or chemistry for me. I've got to have theater. So <laughs> I changed from University of Chicago as a science major to Northwestern as a theater major, knowing nothing whatsoever about theater. I mean, I didn't know what the New York Times was. I mean, that's the kind of situation that I came <laughs> out of. And uh, they had uh, maybe 110, 100 and, uh, 125 students that all came in from all over the country. And so-and-so's uh, son, who was a star, and this person who'd done 12 shows on Broadway. And then there was like me, you know, who didn't know what a proscenium was. And uh, <laughs> so four years later, uh, that really turned around. Uh, and I had been involved with the Second City I, and as their workshops, and I loved them and their whole creative process. And I got together with, uh, there were about six or seven other students, many of them now who are working here in New York and different places, and we did a review along the lines of the Second City, which was my sort of senior thesis project at Northwestern. And uh, it went very well, it was very successful, and, and so on. And uh, what happened was then about six years after Northwestern, we all reassembled in New York. And the core group from that, myself and my partner, uh, and two of the other people got together, and that's how Scramble Feet was born, was uh, with that same group many, many years later. But tell who was in that group. Because that was Evelyn Barron, uh, Jeffrey Haddo, Roger Nelson, right? And, uh, Jeffrey Haddo and I went on to do uh, Chekhov and Yalta, and uh, he's doing many things. Evelyn is in Les Mis right now. She's the Miller's wife. Yeah. Other people around. Well, the second I think, yeah, I was just going to mention the second city. The city was one of the most important influences and for comedy, for training yes. comedy in the country at that time. Um, the, uh, Tony, do you ally yourself to a playwright? Um, is that how you sort of got started? or? Uh, was that a good way to you go? Mean I mean, after, yes, in the theater, or uh, well, I mean, I let's say after, after sort of your training. Oh, um, I guess once I'm actually in the theater, what happens is a play usually winds up somehow in my apartment, and <laughs> the conversation is, "What are we going to do? And uh, can we get it on?" And uh, most often, the playwright immediately wants to know when the first day of rehearsal is, and <laughs> I usually want to know when we're going to fix the second act. <laughs> uh, 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 so. Uh, we have to get past that point. And, uh, I would say more often than not, uh, plays and work has come out of the blue for me. There's been no logic to it, whatever. Somebody recently, in wanting to uh, use my uh, whatever credentials to get some sort of a grant for their institution, asked me if I would send them a resume. And I said, oh, I don't have a resume. And they said, well, I guess you don't need a resume at this point in your career. I said, no, I've never had a resume. I've never made a resume. I said, I wouldn't know what to do with a resume. <laughs> they said, well, how do you get a job? And I said, the phone rings. <laughs> and, um, and basically, that's true. I'm very passive about the uh, career for the last 20-some-odd years. Uh, it's not always a new play, though. Uh, very often, it's an institution that's doing a classic or a revival or a new play. So I pretty much branch between those three. Uh, what I love, of, of course, primarily on new plays the creative process is different, uh, you're much more insecure, and uh, you have to find a solution to it uh, in a very quick way, and I love that. When you start with a finished product that you read and you know it's a classic and it works perfectly, you have a hard job. Fulfilling it is a very hard job, and it's an <coughs> equally important thing to do as a director. It's just not the same experience. So. How did you start before the phone started ringing? <laughs> I had a very non-theatrical uh, background. I grew up in Brooklyn, 
And uh, I was very much of a sort of a, oh, I don't know, maybe Tom Sawyer of the city. I was always out there. I was very streetwise and very interested in the combinations of things that I could find all over Brooklyn. And I used, to, I used to walk over the Brooklyn Bridge to come to New York. I used to hop trains when the family didn't know where I was and I was roaming around the city. I was not in trouble by any means. I was just constantly searching for drama. And, uh, and all the varieties. I grew up in Flatbush, primarily in Brooklyn. And then I was very fortunate to go to uh, Brooklyn Prep, which was a Jesuit prep school. And there, uh, in studying the classics, we read uh, the original Greek plays and Latin plays and Seneca and uh, Aeschylus and whatever. And I went on to a university in Connecticut, a Jesuit, to Fairfield University, where I met the single most important person in my life, a professor named uh, John Lewis Bond. And we didn't have a drama society, uh, drama department, so I was a language major and an English major and a philosophy major, actually. Those were the three things that were uh, primary. But through John Bond, he was a phenomenal analyzer and interpreter of dramatic literature. And I found that I, it was a passion. I was obsessed with what one could find in a Shakespearean play. John had these very elaborate Prussian charts that you had to go through the play at least 12 different times. It would take months just to read one play because you had to really pinpoint every little detail of it. And you would think that it would cause the opposite of passion because it was so mechanical. But for whatever reason, by the time I was a senior at Fairfield University, I went to him and I said, um, I don't know what to do, or where to go, what to do with my life. And he said, well, what is it you love the most? And I said, uh, drama. And he said, why don't you just go off to uh, Catholic University and spend two years there and see what it feels like to be in a real theater program. And I said, oh, all right. How do I do that? And he said, well, I'll call uh, Father Harkey mm -hmm. and tell him you're coming. And it was really that simple, which was overwhelming because when I was ready to leave Brooklyn Prep, Dan Berrigan had been my Latin and English teacher there. This is before he went into jail and everything else, although he was on his way when we were there. Uh, and, and he and I were wonderful uh, opponents, basically. He was always trying to get us to go with him into these struggles. And I used to tell him that it was his problem, not mine. But uh, I went to him and said, I don't know where to go to uh, college. And he said, go to Fairfield University. There is one man there named Father Bond, and he will be the most important thing that ever happened in your lifetime. And I said, all right, what do I do about it? And he said, nothing, I'll call him. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm used to the phone being my favorite person. <laughs> I see. Yeah. What a plug uh, for AT&T. Not since Cliff Robinson has anybody spoken so well about the telephone. Just, just for theater history. Tell us about Father Hartke. He was such a tremendous influence on theater. Father Hartke was the ultimate uh, theatrical politician. He was able to get in and out of that White House, no matter who was there, right. and uh, get them interested in uh, not only Catholic University, but what happened to the graduates. Right. Father Hartke was primarily a man, who, however, who was interested in educational theater. Yes. Um, it was uh, a grind when you went there and you came out of New York and he would find out you were going to go to New York to be in the theater, try to talk you out of it, mm -hmm. basically. And I used to say, but that's my hometown. Yeah. That's, uh, I am going home, right. you know. But uh, he always felt that uh, you could probably accomplish more, have a better life, 
uh, you know, and go into educational theater. So whenever he had, and he had this uh, uh, network all over America of yeah. people who had come out of that, Catholic that University. That is what I was And he was so uh, amazingly uh, attentive to those people. Now, I think Father Hockey was the head of that department for about 55 yeah. years. Yes, he was. He founded it many years ago after working, I think, with Robert Porterfield. They both sort of split up as young football players or something out of Notre Dame, and Father Hockey became mm -hmm. a uh, department founder. He's one of the first educational uh, people. And, and what amazed me was I left there. 25 years later, they gave uh, some awards on Father's uh, um, testimonial dinner at the Shoreham Hotel. There were four awards given, and I was one of them. And Phil Bosco was another, and uh, Jason Miller was uh, mm -hmm. another, and John Peelmeyer. And I hadn't seen Father in all those years. And I went back there and uh, to accept the award, and then I was asked to do a show at Only right after that. And I got to know Father very well in a way I didn't know him when I was a young man. What would be fascinating in having dinner with him or drinks or whatever, is how he would not only remember every single person mm -hmm. who ever went through that school, but mm -hmm. all the details, when they had the child, when they didn't have the child, yeah. you know, how long the marriage lasted or why it didn't. He knew everything about everybody. Yeah, and, and what plays they did and which were big hits and which exactly. weren't. Yes. Yeah, he was, a, he was a real humanist. Right. May I, I'd like to clarify one technical point, if I may, since I'm a playwright <coughs> happy enough lucky enough to be working with Tony Giordano as a director. As, as a fanatic for drama, he set up this fascinating conflict between the playwright and the uh, director. The playwright says, when's the first day of rehearsal? The uh, director says, when do we fix the second act? It's not a conflict. I'll let you in on the secret. On the first day of rehearsal, you start to fix the second act. Well said. It's actually true. That's always the answer that I get. Yeah. Yeah. I'll fix it when we're in rehearsal. Right. Right. Lonnie, what do you have to say about where you started and how you how you work also well, with I, this. I came into directing in a very peculiar way. Actually, it's, it's uh, very odd to be on this panel because two of these gentlemen have directed me. <laughs> so as an actor, I'm, I'm primarily an actor. Um, and, were uh, primarily. Excuse me? Yeah. I were, I were yeah. an actor. I was an actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, now, I'm, uh, now I'm directing two in addition. Um, and I must say it's very nice to be on the other side <laughs> of the table. Um, and I'm very flattered to be here. Uh, I, I started, uh, I was doing a play that John Driver had directed called The Immigrant, which was a very successful play all over the country and yeah, made into a film. Wonderful. And uh, at the American Jewish Theater, which is a man by the name of Stanley Breckner runs. And uh, he had this sort of dopey idea to do a musical next. And uh, the American Jewish Theater is about as big as this table. Uh, and we had four people in our cast of The Immigrant, and he wanted to do this musical with seven people. And I thought he was insane. <laughs> uh, we barely didn't bump into each other with four people. I thought seven was absolutely ludicrous. And I sort of laughed. And he said, do you have any suggestions for this musical I'd like to do? Which was an old George Abbott musical mm -hmm. uh, called The Education of Hyman Kaplan, which was uh, uh, rather of a disaster in 1968. It had the misfortune of opening the night Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. So uh, the critics saw the first act and then creeped up the aisle as the news got to them. Uh, I'm not real sure that it would have made much of a difference, but anyway, uh, they, uh, the writer had always thought that that was part of why it, didn't, it wasn't successful. So he, had, he wanted to do this show, and I read it, and he said, uh, I'd like some suggestions for directors, which I did. I gave him several suggestions. And he said, what about you? 
you know, and I remember sitting back, then, you know, we're, the American Jewish Theater is under a supermarket. It's a very classy place, and <laughs> water drips on you as you're putting your makeup on. It's a, it's a, it's a really quite an astonishing <laughs> establishment. And uh, I remember thinking, uh, for the first time in my life, it was a question that I knew the answer for before I even thought about it. I said, absolutely. And I had never thought truly of being a director, though I had been on a lot of shows that I thought, you know, I do a lot better than this guy, but, <laughs> which most actors will feel, yeah. you know, most actors will feel. Not, however, working with right, these two right. yeah. um, But He's uh, saying that. He yeah. really does yeah. mean both. <laughs> <laughs> well, just one of you, actually. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so uh, I, I directed this play for seven people, and, uh, and, uh, and that really is, is, is how it started. And the next year, he said, uh, he made me the, artist, the associate artistic director. I'm still not quite sure what it means. It doesn't mean any money, I know that, but it <laughs> means something, something, I don't know what. And uh, I had been in a touring production of The Rothschilds as a little, as a 14-year-old kid. It was the first job I'd ever had. And I did it in the summer, because I didn't perform. I went to school, uh, but I didn't perform during the uh, school year. And it was the first professional job I had, and uh, I'd always admired it greatly. And uh, I'd seen the original production of it, which I thought was um, very heavy and stodgy, even though I was, I was younger. I remember it was at the Lunt, um, which um, I think is the worst theater almost in the world that I've ever been in. It's, it's very long orchestra. It, it goes on for, I think it's almost double the amount of orchestra seats in any theater. And it's very long, and the show was huge and very almost operatic. Uh, I remember it had very heavy sets. And then when we did it in the round, because you can't have heavy sets because they pull them up and down the aisles, you know, it's young apprentices running up and down the aisles. Uh, I thought the show worked a lot better. I thought it, the swiftness of it and uh, the lightness, because the book it was very dense and very, it's a very literate, witty book, but it's a real play with, with, with songs. I mean, it's not uh, crossovers, you know, they are real scenes in that play. And I thought it worked a lot better, so when he said, uh, do you want to now put 15 people on this stage the size of that? I thought he was again insane, and again I said yes, and uh, that's how I um, got to do it, which I'm, I'm very glad I, I'm very glad that I did. That brings a, a very important point. You said you didn't know what a proscenium was when you came to New York. The playwright has to know what the, where a proscenium is, how it works, and also what kind of theater they're going into. How much does that take into play on, on the playwrights and the director? Do you beforehand say, you know, what's the second act, but also what theater do you believe that you're going into? Well, in my instance, the theater is a given. You mm -hmm. know, this, this really terrible space is a given, and so it poses uh, certain problems. It's, it's uh, I don't know, John, how to, it's three-quarter, but it's not three thrust. Uh, yeah. But it's not thrust. Long it's a long rectangle, three sides. It's a very, very it's odd very space, odd. with, of course, poles everywhere. You know, so you watch the show kind of like that. Yeah. The audience works harder than the, the actors at times to, 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 to see. But does the director work with, uh, to get around those obstacles? Absolutely. Well, I was very lucky that I had worked with John as an actor on that stage. So I was very aware of certain pitfalls that I think a first-time director in that particular space might have had a great deal of trouble with, but John had worked there before and knew, was very helpful mm -hmm. for me as an actor, to know where you put your back into the aisle and all that kind of diagonal playing, which is very different than a proscenium. And in fact, I've never directed a proscenium. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if I would even be any good at it. I'm, I'm very used to those poles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and when we moved to the larger theater, we're now at Circle in the Square downtown, and uh, it was the funniest thing because we, we brought in a new set designer. And uh, I saw the plans, I thought they were terrific, and he had given me poles. He I said, I'm trying to get away from these poles! <laughs> and 
And he was absolutely right because uh, for some reason he put these very thin poles or in, uh, in several places, and because that's that's a three-quarter thrust, that's a real thrust. Um, the poles somewhat frame it, so it almost looks like a proscenium from wherever you're sitting. Mm -hmm. Even if even if they're like at this angle for you, it gives you kind of a frame so that you feel as though you're watching a picture. Um, which I uh, I said, all right, well we'll, look, we'll see about those poles, but I, I don't know. I hope they're removable. And they came into the theater, and he was dead right. But. Uh, I don't know if that yeah. answered any of your questions. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's a very important part. Is that the old globe there we done? The circle downtown? No. Oh, this was the old roundabout space. Oh. Where oh. it's, uh, it's uh, conveniently located under the co-op supermarket oh, yes. on 20. Oh, yeah, on 26. That's the one. Yeah. Right. With now the dripping ceiling. That's I was it. wondering where it was. Yeah. We talked about a little bit about um, fixing the second act on the first day, which relates to the playwright-director uh, relationship um, and also to artistic influence and, dare I use the word, control, which brings in uh, David Levine and the whole relationship to the dramatist Gill contract and how uh, playwrights and lyricists work within it. Uh, indeed, there's an issue, uh, that's one of the issues, uh, right, uh, very, very uh, important right now going on. Am I not right, David? David, can I just ask? When was the when was the guild founded? Nineteen twenty. Nineteen twenty. It was then I, the Dramatist Guild of the Authors League of America, but it functioned in the same way that it does today. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear a lot about it. You know <laughs> about the the uh, the dispute at the moment. Yeah. Well, I think you have to explain yeah. where we're starting <coughs> here. Let's go back to what your function really okay. is. Yes. The Dramatist Guild is the professional organization of American playwrights. And we are there to protect the author's interest in his own work. Authors in the theater are different from the other media, mechanical media, in that they own their work. And you can't fire an author. Well, I take that back. You can fire an author, but when you fire an author, you fire the play too, because he or she takes the play with, him, with them. It's not like television where you can get a committee of four people to change, or even films where you can do that. And therefore, the cornerstone of our contract, which was first devised in 1926, is that no changes, alterations, or omissions may be made in the script without the playwright's consent, period. No changes. I often get questions from young writers who are anxious to have their plays performed. Actually, all writers are anxious to have their plays performed. And they'll say, listen, I'll, I'll do anything. Uh, Truly, they will. Sometimes uh, when we hear talk about young playwrights demanding royalties, I wonder, because sometimes I think young playwrights would not only not demand any royalties, they'd pay $500 to see their play done. But we're there to make sure that they don't do that. <laughs> and I tell them, well, you can get away if the, this cause isn't so good. You can get away with that cause if it isn't so good. But if you don't have script control, if anyone can change your work, please take the play put it in your desk drawer and go out to the movies or to the ball game because you're going to be sorry later. There's nothing worse, I think, for a playwright than seeing his play performed in not the way that he he she wrote it. And that's the cornerstone of the, of the contract. Mm -hmm. Well, but now what, what has happened? Well, what's happened now is that uh, the Dramatist Guild has concerns in the Lord Arena, the League of Resident Theaters, and those 200 some odd theaters scattered throughout the United States, and we're trying to devise a contract for our members. What stands for what? League of Resident Theaters. 
And actually, there are more theaters than those that are members of, of Lort. There are probably 65 or 70 members of Lort, and the arena is probably 200. And I guess the best way to define it is to say those theaters that use Lort contracts as issued by Actors' Equity. Uh, and we're trying to devise a contract for that arena, and we're meeting with some resistance from the Lort arena, from the Lort theaters themselves. There are a lot of theaters in New York City, aren't there? In yes, Manhattan several. As well. Several, mm -hmm. yeah. That operate under a lot. Under a lot contract, yes. What are the provisions for a lot contract? What are the qualifications? Oh, well, just that it's, it's a class of, of uh, performance that Actors' Equity determines to be a lot performance. What determines that? The length of time that the theater has been in existence, the fact that it's not for profit. Lord theaters are typified by being theaters that have seasons. They typically have a four to six week, week run of five or six different plays. Uh, they're scattered throughout the United States, as I said. It's easy to define them as what they aren't. They aren't commercial theaters. They aren't amateur theaters. They aren't the old summer stock theaters that we all used to know. They are the resident theaters. Resident is something of a misnomer at the moment. I think when the resident movement started 25 or 30 years ago, the fervent hope was that they would become resident theaters in truth. They would have companies, not only of actors, but directors and designers and technicians. That hasn't happened to a great extent. George, how many? There are five or six theaters About that have that, companies. Yeah, it's, it's and the others use actors from various localities, their own if there are enough there. Uh, and if not, they, they bring actors and other theater people in. What about companies like Playwrights Horizons and, and um, Playwrights Horizons, use the same people? Playwrights Horizons, and it, it, it's almost foolish to try and remember, but I'll try. I think Playwrights Horizons downstairs works on a mini off-Broadway contract, and I don't know what the contract is upstairs. Mm -hmm. But they're not a Lord Theatre in that sense. Mm -hmm. But isn't, the, isn't one of the key issues in this new contract is artistic control, which is a, yes quite a no. sweeping thing? Yes and no. They're, I'm very pleased to say that there's not been any problem about the script. Uh, I rarely have ever seen a contract from Lort that didn't give the author his assurances about the script being done. Uh, artistic control in other respects, yes. Uh, the Guild believes that its members who create characters should at least have a mutuality with the producing entity to decide the actors who are going to play it, the directors who are going to direct it, and the other, some of the other important artistic elements. That provision is not found in all Lord contracts, and it's one of the things that this problem is about. Uh -huh. I'm interested. Oh, I'm sorry. Gee. <coughs> is Guthrie a Lord? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Undoubtedly Lord A. Yes. How many members do you have? 7,500 throughout the United States. And people Pretty can sad. join. How do they join uh, people who want to get into the Dramatist Guild to be protected? The only eligibility requirement is that a man or woman has written a play, written a play or the component part of a musical. Uh, once he or she is a member, there are various types of membership. Those, there, there's one for those who have written, there's one for those who have achieved a certain level of production, and then another for those who have received a production either in a first class, an off-Broadway, or a main stage Lord Theatre. But they're all equally members. And the distinctions within the membership categories are very slight. Good. Are there any regional theaters in New York City? There are, well, yes. There are theaters that are members of Lort, and there are theaters that use the Actors' Equity Lort contract. I would say probably, Tony, maybe a dozen, maybe fewer. 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 The real Lort ones are uh, Lincoln Center and um, Roundabout. Roundabout. 
Right. And one or two, I think there are one or two other things. Circle Uptown is one, isn't it? Pardon? Circle Uptown, I think, is one. No, I think that's no. a production company. No, that's a production yeah. company. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? It's, yeah. it's very hard to tell because yeah. you can't look and see that they're lore. You really have to know, and the only way to know is to keep the book and, and can yeah. continually refer to it. And also it changes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a theater will use one contract and sometimes it will use another. It's hard to tell. Thank you. Uh, Shelley, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about, because we talk about the relationships, we talk to directors about the relationship of their working with playwrights and, and, uh, and lyricists. Uh, and of course, you mentioned working or having worked with Hal Prince, but mm -hmm. um, how do you function vis-a-vis -vis a director? Uh, I, I, you obviously had pretty good symbiotic relationships with, with directors. Or, uh, What's it's a matter of give and take. After I've worked for a long time putting a lot of thought into what I want to say, uh, and then I meet with a director who says, uh, I wanted, I would like, usually they're very courteous, you know, I think you should consider changing this. And I listen. I, there's resistance, because I hate to rewrite at all, and especially under those circumstances. But when the director points out something that I can't argue with, um, as happened to me, I was at the University of Michigan a year ago working on a piece, and the director pointed out something. He, he was like a wonderful att prosecuting attorney. <laughs> and I was defending myself as best I could and giving him answers. And then he mm -hmm. gave me a question I could not answer. And I thought, okay, I've got to change this. Because it comes out of your own integrity. You can only lie so much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with, with a director I respect, I will always listen. And then sometimes when one is insecure about one's work, it becomes difficult at a certain point to say, no, I want it this way. Then, of course, ultimately, uh, and hopefully, you get it in front of an audience, and then you watch, again, as, as objectively as possible. And it's very difficult to be objective because you have so many protective uh, emotional devices that, want, that don't want to change, that want, want, you want to see something that isn't there even. And that's another reason for a good director. He can be more objective than you can about your own work. Um, one of the, the um, seminars, the playwright said that his test was when he met with the director to say, tell me what you think the play is about. What is the key in this play? And, and if it didn't satisfy them, if they saw something else, then they felt that they could not work with them as playwright and director. Do you feel that so? How do you? Well, I think that people should always be in communication. I think but it is beforehand. Yeah. I think it is. No, I mean from the very beginning. Uh -huh. I think you are dealing with a property. And um, when I first started professionally in the business. Um, uh, I worked once for Kermit Bloomgarden. What was so wonderful was that as a producer, he uh, owned the property. He cared about that relationship with himself and the playwright. Even before you entered the picture, he was already the guardian of the estate, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, we've lost that uh, in the 20-some-odd years yeah. I've been around, mm -hmm. and now it's the director who supposedly is the one who gets it first, and I think that's wrong. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that, that if you a producer know. had the yeah. property and then works with the playwright as to what to do about that, and if there are changes that need to be done, and then they search for a method, either directly or by bringing in a third party, then the first, per the first journey should be the fixing of the property to get it ready for production. Mm -hmm. Then I think all the other people can be hired 
uh, and uh, judged. I just think there's nothing wrong. When, when I did a show for Kermit, actually, I was asked to come in and tell him what I thought of a play he had given what me. What was the show that you it did? It was for? called um, uh, uh, Take My Wife with Kay Medford. Mm -hmm. And we were going to do it uh, in Paramus and then <coughs> supposedly bring it in. Actually, we opened the day Kermit's leg was amputated at the uh, Lenox Hill Hospital, mm -hmm. so it was a uh, fait accompli. But in any case, what was interesting, as I arrived, having read the script, I had just done a play with Colleen Dewhurst that Kermit saw, which is how, what caused him to ask me to do this other show. And I arrived, having read the script, and he said, what do you think? And he and the playwright were sitting on the opposite side of a coffee table in Kermit's office when there was a producer's office midtown, and it was all very uh, seedy and tacky and old. And, and, uh, and, and I there just, were golfers. Oh, I just loved it. It was great. It was like, wow, this is what they must mean by the real theater somehow. You know? uh, there, was, uh, there were ghosts all over the place in his office. And I sat there for 25 minutes, told him that I thought it was the worst play I had ever <laughs> read in my lifetime. I was horrified that they would ever go into rehearsal, that I couldn't understand why he would even have asked me to read it or why he would produce it. And I went on and on and on and into utter detail. And finally, Marvin Sandberg, the playwright, looked over to Kermit at one point, some horrible thing I said at some point, and Marvin was tomato red. And I said, well, I, I guess that's the end of whatever <laughs> this job is all about. And Kermit said, why? And I said, well, obviously, Marvin is very upset with uh, the last 20 minutes. <laughs> and uh, Kermit said, uh, no. He said, you know why he looked at me that way? And I said, no. He said, because everything you've said for 20 minutes is what I've been saying for weeks. And he said, had you said anything else, I would have asked you to leave 15 minutes ago. Uh, I said, really? And he said, yes. He said, I think you're absolutely right on the target. These are the problems with the script. He said, now I have one question. And I said, what? He said, would you direct the show? <laughs> I said, why and was I he said, doing it if he thought said, that way? I said, what do you mean? What do you want to do? And he said, well, I think since you and I both see it, can we fix it before we get into rehearsal and try to do something with this? Marvin is agreeable because he's already told me that he was willing. So we began the process of trying to fix it. Well, the process of fixing a script is uh, a fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's really a playwright's problem most times, and every time you go into committee <coughs> to do it, it, it uh, it's almost foolish. It's, it is a journey that we're all very foolish to act as if we can do that, and I've been in that process over and over over the years, and it almost mm -hmm. never fully works. But, but what was wonderful was that he was already there before I yeah. was, and that even though it was a foolish choice, and after his leg was amputated, and I visited him in the hospital, and Kermit said, I hear it was a wonderful opening. And I said, oh, it was terrible. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, well, everybody said it was a great show. I said, oh, embarrassing, Kermit. <laughs> and and uh, he said, Tony, that's crazy. Everybody else has been here. And they all said the audience is like, I said, well, you're asking me or you're asking other people. So he said, really? Do you, it was really that bad? I said, yeah, it really was that bad. And, and, uh, and he said, what do you think the cause of this was? And I said, there are two. And he said, what were they? And I said, you? and me. I said, <laughs> we took something that we, f we refused to accept on its own terms. We wanted it to be better than it was, and we tried to, you know, put around something into a square something or whatever, and I said we wouldn't leave it alone. But again, that was a failed story, yeah. except he was trying to do the job of the producer. And so I would imagine very often did it quite well. Uh, oh, he did. He, yeah. was, he was a member of the board of directors of the mm -hmm. American Theatre Wing, and one of the 
teachers in the wing school. Mm -hmm. But tell me, at wh what stage of your career were you at when you were in Kermit's office? That was a long time ago, and you had the nerve uh, and the security to say what you did. Well, I was early. It was, um, uh, uh, let's see, that was 19... Uh, oh, God, I guess 1972 or something like that. 71, 72, uh -huh. somewhere along that line. I was nine. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, the nerve really comes from growing up in Brooklyn. I don't think it comes I from... Do. Yeah. Go all the way back the to that street directing, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Kermit allowed that. Kermit. Yeah, uh, that's what I loved about him, was that he really loved theater and he loved the truth. I knew Kermit very well thereafter, and uh, he was enormously, uh, especially through all those torturous times oh. from that point on. Yeah. It's a very open, very honest man. We need that producer back, because this problem of playwrights and directors uh, needs refereeing, basically. And I think the producer is the person who should say to the director, what do you think? And the director might come up with something different than what the playwright wants. If the producer has already optioned the play and is in an ownership relationship, I think that decision should be made in that way, basically. Because obviously the playwright is the author, does own the property, has every right to the play. There should be no question. But as a director, you can't help but feel that you are the author of the production. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't feel that, you don't have the freedom to interpret it f as fully as possible. So somebody should be playing that other game for us. Verno, as, as director, playwright, an actor, I who referees Who referees you? <laughs> yes, Which I was going to ask that. No, really actually, really um, what I do is I, I workshop it when I write a piece. I get friends, uh, people I've worked with before, and we put a production together, and we do the first production normally like in a place like, well, furthermore, for example, I did it in New Orleans mm -hmm. uh, for four weeks, and then just cut it. And then we went to Milano for a theater festival, and we did it there for 10 days. And then we went out to New Jersey, to New Brunswick, and we did it at Crossroads Theater. Well, that's where the secret uh, weapon comes in, because the artistic director of a theater normally doesn't have the time to direct the show. But in a case where you have a writer-director working, they can really be that, uh, they can step in as a director at that point without killing their own schedule. Mm -hmm. So Rick Kahn at Crossroads Theater was a um, co-director with me, uh, and he's artistic director for the Crossroads Theater. One more time, Zelda Fitzhandler, did the same thing. We had run for New... One more time was in New Orleans for about eight months. Then we went to the Bahamas, and then we did a couple of things in Switzerland. And then we went to Washington, to the arena stage, and Zelda was there with me molding the show. And I had an understudy who was doing the role while I was out with Zelda, and then I'd jump back in, and she'd <laughs> see how that worked. So it was a lot of trust in the artistic director mm -hmm. of regional theater to, to overall see the production for me. So it's not quite direction in the sense that I can... It's direction somebody in a purer sense right. mm -hmm. of the word, yeah. Something Tony just said, though, that I, th I think is, is very important, and, and, I, and, and from all of the shows that I've been on, I've been on uh, several rather large disasters, you know, multi-million dollar monsters that um, go into rehearsal way before they should, 
with scripts that everyone says, well, we, you know, a lot of that, you know, and, you know, uh, and uh, there's always, and, and now we're at a time when there isn't even the, you know, the Gower Champions, if it's a musical, or the Bob Fosse's, or the Michael Bennett's, I mean, you know, to call when everybody is coughing and dying, and you're losing $250,000 a week, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, the producer is what, what Tony was talking about, and, and I think there's a very, very serious problem. Um, the shows that I've been on have had people who are dress manufacturers, uh, who are producing. I mean, you talk about Kermit Bloomgarden. He knew about the theater, and that's terrific that he had that relationship with the playwright. The ones that I've been on, even the straight plays, God, I, I'm so if, if they had any more to do with it, it would have been even a larger disaster. So uh, what I'm curious about is what creates a producer these days to really nurture a production and, and also where is the person that really has, I, I imagine Kermit Bloomgarden, maybe I'm fantasizing, had a very great knowledge of the theater and of yeah. the classics and yeah. what made a play work and what a second yeah. act was and what a catharsis was. and all. Uh, The people who run the New York theater commercially now have no idea of what the theater is about, Some of them and it's do. dangerous. Not all of them. Well, Some of them very do. majority. I, I would agree with you on the majority. Are too many productions that have five, six, seven, and eight producers on it, and there is no one. Well, they cost captain. so much now that's that right. one man can't raise four that's million dollars, right. or if it's a straight plate, two million dollars. Well, I think it was very clever of you to to set up the. Uh, the next uh, seminar with that commercial <laughs> from from Lonnie Oh, we have to watch it. I'll yeah. come and watch but it. But it's, it's, it's a very, very, very interesting. I mean, does anyone have any ideas as to where that would come from? I think from? investors Gene are wants to say something. Can I tell you, when I first started to produce with John Golden, he would buy a play, and then he would give it to me, and he would ask what I thought of it. And I would tell him, and he would say, that's very good. It's a little different from the way it is. Do you think we can, between us, get it to work that way and please the author? So then we'd get the author in and say, this is our idea on making these changes. What do you think? And he would say, well, I don't like that, but I think that's terrific. And then we'd say, well, shall we go to work on it and see what that turns out? And we would do that, and that would take about a week. And, um, uh, and then we'd like it, and we'd go on, and we'd suddenly say, oh, and isn't that a marvelous part for so-and-so? And he'd say, yes. And the next thing you know, we'd be in rehearsal, and that was it, and it was frozen. Mm -hmm. And we'd do it just Times that way. <laughs> yes, indeed. I went to Sheldon in, in musical comedy. As a lyricist, is your job to move the action of the play along? Do the lyrics take you from one part of the script to the other? Is that part of the lyricist's job or role? Sometimes. Not job? Sometimes. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons for songs in a musical. Uh, as uh, as it's been observed very often that, especially in a musical where there are dialogue scenes, when the scene reaches a point emotionally that it is meant to soar, then people stop talking and begin to sing. Uh, so that a song can move the action forward or it can be the culmination, the crest of a scene, the, the climax of a scene to make the scene pay off. Or it can be a comment or it can be uh, just a divertisement, something that's going to mm -hmm. amuse 
but, uh, and even there, there's a danger that if it amuses too much, it may be difficult to get back to the, the story. I once saw Tessie O'Shea stop a show, and she stopped it so completely that you, there was almost no way to go on with the show. <laughs> and the rest of the act just died. But there are many reasons uh, to write lyrics for shows. John, what do you think about that, too? Have you had that? Are you in the middle of a couple now or one? <clears throat> well, Shogun has uh, been a kind of unique uh, situation to write because um, both from the producing angle, which we were discussing, and also from uh, the very, uh, the lyric situation as you were talking about. Uh, in Shogun, we have a very unique, to deal with the producing element first, uh, uh, James Clavell is essentially functioning as an executive producer uh, with uh, Joe Harris, who uh, reminds me very much of Kermit Bloomgarten, uh, the kind of man who's mm -hmm. really come up through theater and done 200 plus uh, productions as a general manager and That's really knows the theater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, he's both general manager and co-producer. So uh, in that s uh, situation, I I'm very fortunate, I think, as a book writer and lyricist on the show because uh, on the one hand, I have a producer who wrote the book, the novel itself, and certainly knows story, having written things like uh, The Great Escape and uh, The Fly and all the, the novels that he's done. So, uh, and at the same time, someone like Joe Harris, who is a, a, just a consummate theater professional, who's the kind of person, you ask the question, where's someone going to come from uh, to fill that kind of shoes? And, and I think there is a route and there are people out there that, are, that have the experience and the wherewithal to kind of move into it. So, in that case, has been very interesting. With Shogun, I mean, what the task that I had was to take a 1,200-page novel and make it into uh, a musical that you can watch in an evening that's of I'm going to stop you right there, length. but remember where you stopped, because <laughs> okay. that 1,200-page novel has to come back again. <laughs> okay. And we're going to take a break now, and if anyone has any questions that haven't been answered here, be ready to ask them for it because this is a most experienced panel and I've, I've enjoyed and listening to you so much. And I'm sure a lot of questions have been answered, but if they haven't, please get ready to ask them. But don't ask them if they have already been answered. Thank you very much. Don't go far away. Okay? <laughs> This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. We're continuing with the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on the playwright-director, and it's a very fulsome program and a very fulsome seminar. The amount of knowledge and, and wise words that are being spoken here are just mind-boggling. And I want to continue with John Driver, who is working with Shogun now, a wonderful new play that's coming into New York, and, and I interrupted right in the middle. So we're going to go back to you, and can you right, pick we, it up? We were talking before sort of uh, about the proscenium and that the playwright should have a knowledge of the proscenium and, and how it works, and 
Uh, in this case, uh, it was interesting because you, s you started with a, a novel which was huge and sprawling, and at the same time you had kind of a general uh, budget consideration in mind, which was large. I mean, you knew this was going to be a big show. You can't do uh, a small version of Shogun uh, and have people pay $55 to see it. They're going to walk away screaming for their money back, and you want to uh, give a feeling of the period and the wonderful events and the action of the book. So uh, in sitting down to do it, uh, what I literally did very often, as well as try to find moments that sing emotionally out of a scene, as, as Sheldon was talking about before, is also find moments that uh, have unique and exciting production value, particularly things that are uh, essentially Eastern in their concept. So uh, what evolved from the whole process were um, things like uh, an, uh, an earthquake. We have escape from, uh, an escape from Osaka castles. Uh, we have a tremendous uh, ninja fight. Uh, it's things like we have a, a ship coming through the fog at the top. There are, there are many effects and numbers, in fact, which were generated just uh, in a way for spectacle. Uh, and now I, people can quibble with that perhaps, but <coughs> In a way, that was our concept. The nature of this uh, piece was grand, large, and uh, we decided to go after that with both hands. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That uh, a spectacle, because uh, we hear rumors of, of uh, you don't have a helicopter landing on the stage. Right? No, the helicopter. It's a little too early. You know, uh, we would have had it. We tried. You know, uh, well, think about kites, it. but it didn't work. Right. Tom, I was going to ask you vis-a-vis -vis the. Uh, um, business of, of working with a director. You mentioned uh, also a, f a friend of mine, David Wheeler, uh, and your first play uh, taken by David. And, uh, and uh, there were two, uh, this is a, a two, qu two questions. One, uh, how that worked, because you, you came, it sounded as if you came to playwriting rather relatively late mm -hmm. uh, and dealt with a, 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 a wonderful, manic director. Uh, and also the other thing is, because of your knowledge of, of Russian, you've also dealt with translation. I realize there's a two questions, but some <laughs> things I think we should touch on a little bit. But first, with about working with David. Well, I could try to talk a little bit about that, because it may be of interest to people just as far as playwright and director kinds of relationships. Exactly. When I, uh, I got into theater, really, uh, David Wheeler was my sort of mentor in theater. He himself was a brilliant academic to start with. He's in, uh, in a very lively fellow, and he grabs you by the collar, and he whispers metaphors in your ear, and gets you all excited, and, and vastly learned it in languages. And um, he loves language plays. This was in the, in the 60s. And it was the time when, in this little theater in Boston, some of the first productions of Harold Pinter were occurring. There was a good deal of Beckett. I remember there was a Waiting for Godot uh, with Dustin Hoffman, who was 21, and Paul Benedict. And Hoffman never heard of Godot. David said, just do it. You know, there's wonderful language. And, and Hoffman said, I don't understand this. He said, just do it. So he did it for a while. And he said, whatever it is, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that my interest uh, became, and, and since I was working in film a bit, and film can do extraordinary things, of course. The theater used to do uh, action, emotion, the things of this world, and do them much better, perhaps. Not than Shogun, but... On the, but the, I fell in love with theater through David Wheeler, his impulse, because it was, I saw that language could live there. It was a place where language could have an empire. And I want to mention something specific, if I could, about... I, I feel a brotherhood with uh, Alani, because I, I also have two directors here, one of whom uh, George was going to direct about time soon, and, and Tony's been working on it here off-Broadway, so I have to watch out what I say. 
But uh, to take this one step further, since uh, I love uh, language and theater still can make language live, and by the way, the New York critics don't always understand this. They think you're trying to write something else, but that's another problem. <laughs> uh, so when in, in the specifics of working with Tony Giordano, who's a wonderful director to work with, you say, what, what then happens? How do you approach the play? Well, I make up these uh, circles of language and flights and such, and uh, I think they mean something, and people laugh and they're moved and we're getting somewhere. And Tony said, and uh, it's a different approach from David Wheeler. He, he, he wanted the, the language to go as far as it could, and Tony does too. But Tony said he's interested in the story. He said, buried inside all of these words, all these poetic things, these jokes and slants and conflicts, and there's a story, even if the playwright doesn't know what the story is himself. And he says, it's fair to say, that, that he took his job as director specifically, what is the story that's in there? And he only wanted changes and it's interesting, when he felt the language wasn't serving the story, when he found the story. And I learned to listen to that, because he never said, let's just change this because it's Tuesday, I'm tired, I'm hungover, you know, <laughs> and I got a very bad letter this morning. It was always, at this point, the story isn't being served. What can we do? How can you make the language do that? And so that's what I feel is a very happy relationship. Where we're we haven't divided up the world, it's an intersection. The language and the story is coming together. When you work with translation of plays, which I've done a lot of, of course, that's a very key question, because you take some of this, uh, say, I've worked with Russian a good deal. Russians uh, have just a torrent of language, <coughs> just enormous, as you know from Russian plays, if you've seen them, uh, even from Chekhov to some degree, there's a great desire to express oneself <laughs> at length, <laughs> richly. And, and, uh, and it's very important to Russians as people, it's very important in their theater. And, you know, it's, it's funny because when sometimes when you're working with a Russian play, you realize it's going to be four hours long. And you see your Russian friend, the player, and he says, well, what, what's, what's, what's trouble with that? You know, in <laughs> Russia, people would rather sit in theater than go home. <laughs> so why have played a 62 minutes long? <laughs> um, but, of course, I think Robert Frost once said, uh, trying to define poetry. He said, what is poetry? He said, well, poetry is that which gets lost in translation. <laughs> so you cannot, you cannot do the richness of language in translating. And interestingly enough, as a playwright trying to translate and capture the essence of some of these plays, I find myself like the director saying, well, I've got to, I've got to find what the story is and make sure that gets told. And if there are things that I can't handle, wild jokes, extreme richness of allusions to certain alleyways in uh, Leningrad, uh, we just have to let that go. So it's uh, in, in thinking about both sides, uh, playwright and, and director, and also the problems of translating from very, very rich foreign plays, it's very interesting that there's some kind of, uh, maybe it's a painful but fascinating intersection where language and story meet. And that's where I try to do this work. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Edith Oliver, the wonderful critic, once, as working as a dramaturg, would say to a playwright, once upon a time, what? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's a very I have so, I'm just going to add because I've worked with Tony as well as an actor, so this is just the, the flip side. And uh, um, what's interesting, too, that a director can do when, um, when the words aren't helping, uh, which, are, which, which happens, uh, and uh, this was the first experience I've ever had of this, this kind, where Tony uh, will make up, uh, will not make up, with create with the actors in collaboration, a subtext that is very, in fact, sometimes different from what the words are doing, but in a funny way, tend to support the whole play. If the scene is not working right verbally, where the actual, the actual text is, 
Tony um, will help the actor discover uh, a subtext, which is, of course, unspoken words and, and ideas that... How does he um, do that? Well, I don't know quite how he does I guess that's why he's great, because I don't know quite how he does it. Um, I guess we explore where we want to get to. Uh, we understand where the, what the player is trying to do, even if he's not totally successful in doing it, and uh, where, where it starts to go awry. And somehow you can be saying words that are what the playwright said, but because of the way you're saying them and what your intention are, I mean, you know, I can say uh, uh, this this water is good, or I can say this water is good, or this this water is good, and they're all very different. They're all mm -hmm. very different ideas. But Tony gives you such an elaborate subtext that you're very clear as to what you're doing, and they are the same words, but he helps the author so much by, by very his good, Very good definition of what the director mm -hmm. should be doing. Mm -hmm. And very it's good. very rare, I have to say, that in my experience as an actor, where um, particularly working with a new play, it's very important where the director is really able to help an actor do that so that it helps the play even though the words are the same. Along that line, I would ask, what is a dramaturg? Where this, this comes <laughs> in? Is it like to... Would you I like to just take one? Okay. Would you yes, like to explain explain what it is? Well, it's uh, come into our our being. You know, it's like casting agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's another function, function in a sense. But uh, there are people who have a background in theater and love theater, but they're there for the author to meet with in the very beginnings of rehearsal, so that the director and the author can decide what the focus is going to be, what they really want to say with this piece. And he or she is there to, to keep that, that, to guide that uh, particular, in that, that uh, original intention, to guide it along throughout rehearsals, where so much can come in and throw it off. Uh, costumes, uh, music arrangements, whatever, can, can throw you off from your original point. Mm. They're there to sort of be the, the traffic cop. Who conceived of that? knew that addition to the production. Shouldn't no. the playwright and the director be doing that? Isn't it's a European influence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Brecht really was mm -hmm. the one yeah. that mm -hmm. invented the term. Right. Um, Comes out of Germany and a lot of their national theater, etc. There was always somebody on staff whose job it was to uh, help the structure or the research. How do you feel about it? How do you do it? Is well, it I had an like experience it? with George actually doing uh, Lisa and David at the uh, Eugene O'Neill uh, in it was 84, and we had Joe Masteroff was the resident dramaturg, uh, and he was assigned to this particular piece, and it was a musical in development, a uh, musical based on the novel by Theodore Isaac Rubin. Uh, and Joe, who had written, I believe, the book for Cabaret, uh, was very helpful throughout the process. He would give advice, suggestions, he would guide... Uh, uh, the whole piece along moment by moment and uh, uh, help to keep you focused on what your intentions were, what the intent of the whole piece was. Of course, that was part of the process at the O'Neill. Um, how do you Someone think once explained it to me. They said the dramaturg is to champion and protect the play. And I think that's helpful, Isabel. They, they, they are in it for the play and not for either the director or the producer or the writer. They're, they're in it for the play, just right. the play. Mm -hmm. They champion the play. Is there a guild for that? 
do they have to join? <laughs> no, but there is. There is. Well, they will there be. Will there, really is the <laughs> there is a division. There is a division. I think there's one of you guys must know it better than I. There's a, a, an association of literary managers, and I think they have a they have a division. It's a, it's a new one. It, right. Isn't it? That's why George. It's, it's, it's a new group yeah. of, of, of dramaturgs. Uh, yeah. Call, call dramaturgs. Actually, I, I, this seems to be the day to quote Edith Oliver, but she once said, <laughs> because we've used sure. them a lot at the O'Neill Center, uh, she said. You know what a dramaturg is? You ever see an old-fashioned washing machine? And I said, what, do you, what is that about? She said, that's what a dramaturg is. I said, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I said, you know it had a crank on the side? That's what a dramaturg is, is a, a crank on the side, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's just, To support George's stories about Edith, because I spent so many years at the O'Neill, and Edith was the dramaturg on so many of the shows that I worked on. Her other theory was that the dramaturg was the person who got the bucket of water on the very hot days so people could throw water themselves when they were working. She stayed out of the, a lot. She was very uh, special in that sense of knowing that the playwright and the director and the actors really were doing the creative work. She kept trying to, what she said, um, clean up the script of all of its dirty language. And I won't quote what she meant because she didn't mean what you think. She meant all those awful adjectives and adverbs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that people put into scripts. She loved the rest of it, as a matter of fact. But she pretty much stayed out of the creative process. We're about to go to questions from the audience, and, and I hope that, George, you want to say something well, before? Well, I just, Sheldon, oh. you wanted to pick up on something about yeah. the relationship then. Uh, right. After you had asked me about my relationship as a lyricist with the directors, the example I chose was a show which I wrote by myself, and that was an, uh, an atypical example. Ordinarily, a director for a musical is, uh, is tremendously important, perhaps even maybe not more important than a director for a straight play, but his role is a little different because most musicals have a composer, a lyricist, mm -hmm. and a book writer, and consequently, we, although we think we're all working towards the same goal and working on the same wavelength, we may not be. And uh, the director's function quite often is to stand back and make sure that all of us are writing the same show. Mm -hmm. Because it's not Very like important. a playwright who has control of all the elements. I have control of only a third of what constitutes a musical, as does the composer, as does the book writer. Mm -hmm. So that uh, the director's role is different He's a referee, he's also got to be creative, and it's one of the reasons why there seem to be so few really good uh, directors of music. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're about to go to questions right now, and, and please be brief, and if you will say who it's for. Yes, this question is for Tom Cole, and I wondered if you'd discuss some of the differences you found in writing for theater, uh, having written for film. Um. In writing for film, you can make a living. <laughs> Amen. Well, you know what they say about theater, you know, you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. Uh, but um, more seriously, folks, uh, in, in film, I, I don't, I'm more of a filmmaker than a screenwriter and, and trying to tell a story in images using words to help that. And what you find, just as one quick technical thing, is you tend to cut the language back more and more and more. Not that you shouldn't, that you should not waste words in theater either. On the other hand, it seems to me the ultimate moment in film somehow is, uh, you know, we're using language is, oh, I'm like at the end of um, Some Like It Hot, when Joey Brown says, nobody's perfect. Uh, two words, incredibly wonderful. This is a whole situation of uh, too elaborate to describe, so I won't. And it seems to me the ultimate moment in, in theater, 
in straight play, let's say, is on the contrary. Maybe this is this is very rough, but when you you've gotten yourself into position dramatically, and what's going on between people, where language can begin to fly, and I think that's one of the reasons people go to plays to to see and hear that happen. You have to arrange it often with very with great brevity and sharpness, but very few moments in film that I know there are some really work that way. The language is part of a swelling thing. It's action and what's on the mantelpiece and is what does he want? We see his eyes, and language can't do that. So it's, it, 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 the quickest way to say it is you tend to shrink the language in film appropriately, and God grant you find a way to expand it <laughs> at certain moments in theater. Wonderful. Well, what would be the difference between a filmmaker and a film writer? writer? Yeah. I mean, I know that one tells the story with some words and one crafts the images, but well, how do they fit uh, in together? Yeah, again, as far as the business goes, there's this old Polish joke that came up when we were talking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the famous story about the, the, the Polish star that came to Hollywood and slept with a screenwriter. Not an important thing to do. <laughs> because the screenwriter has very, very little control in the business of the film. A very important figure in craft, as is the film editor. The editors are superb. Uh, creators, and they, you know, they call them cutters, <laughs> and there's a kind of scorn at both, both ends of people who are composing. A filmmaker uh, in, in, in uh, lower budget films, often a writer-director, you write a story you think can be told best on film and then you make it. Or in my own case, I, I'm very close to a director because I'm married to her and we work together a lot, so although I do the, put up the actual words on the page uh, and she does the actual, say, action, we do a lot of it together we were, because we were trained as documentary filmmakers together to start with. I understand. With. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. So, no. My question is directed to the playwrights. Um, unlike Sheldon Harnick, I completed a UN career and then decided to become an actor. <laughs> <laughs> and ever since, I've been hoping that someone like Neil Simon or Woody Allen would write a role for me, which brings me to my question. Have you ever written a a play with a specific actor or actress in mind? And if not, at what point during the process do you start thinking of the casting? Bruno, do you want to try to take that? Well, I always write with a specific person in mind. I don't know if I can get that person later as far as casting is concerned, but I, I take it from a, um, my own idea of that person, not their personality, what they've done on stage, a character might have seen, and, and take it further. But yeah, I choose someone as a sort of model, so that it'll have breath in it before I start. My, my uh, approach has always been to write for the fictional character without thinking of the flesh and blood actor. And what's happened is, especially in a musical where so much rewriting goes on after it's uh, on the road, uh, what's happened is once I start to rewrite and I have those people, Zero Mostel, you know, or somebody like that, or Jack Cassidy, then there are specialties that they do which creep into the work. But initially, I just write for the character. I'm starting a new project based on the life of Milton Berle. And so, uh, in my mind, I have a particular actor in mind who could play that role, who could play a young Milton. Of course, I'd never say who that is because his agent would ask for a fortune already, but <laughs> at, least, at least you have that in mind as sort of a target. Now, probably it won't work out, that person won't be available, or even the best person at the time, but it's sort of an image that's out there for me. Thank you. Thank you. My question is for David Levine. Mr. Levine, what is the difference between a guild and a union? And then the second part of that question is, what is the foundation of the Dramatist Guild and how does that function? classic difference between a guild and a union is that a union is a combination of 
persons who are employees. They can be fired at will of the employer. A guild denotes that the persons comprising the guild are other than employees, which is what the dramatist guild is, because as I said before, playwrights are not employees, they're independent contractors. Foundation of the dramatist guild is an organization that the dramatist guild started to promote the craft of playwriting. I think we started about 10 or 12 years ago and our primary project is the production of the Young Playwrights <coughs> Festival, which is a combination of plays produced in full off-Broadway production at Playwrights Horizons, which are distinguished by the fact that their writers, their creators, were younger than 19 when they wrote the plays. And we've just finished, uh, we were at Playwrights September and October, I think. Do you have any programs concerned with musical theater, musical theater writing? The Dramatist Guild does. Uh, we have a music theater development program, and I think Sheldon Harnick is on the faculty, or has been on the faculty of that, and that's a very vigorous program that we conduct each year. Great, thank you. Is there an apprentice program in the Guild? No, not at the present time. Well, then how does a young playwright, other than getting attention on having been part of the program, get into the playwright skill. Get into the program? Mm -hmm. uh, 21,000 posters in every school and university in the United States of America for possibly three to four slots each year. We receive as many as 2,500 scripts. The kids somehow know about it and they keep submitting. Good enough. <laughs> Hi, my name is Colleen Quinn, and I'm with Fordham University at Lincoln Center. Um, my question is for John Driver. What was your um, attraction to writing specifically for the musical theater as opposed to straight plays? Well, the expression, uh, I think, musical theater itself, I think, is one of the highest and finest art forms that exist, uh, certainly for the stage, because when you think about it, it's a synthesis of several wonderful arts. Uh, the f first of which is the dramatic art itself. You know, uh, basically almost anything that a play can accomplish, you you can deal with themes like that in a musical. Then you have an extra added element of the music itself, plus the elements of dance, let alone the scenic and costume designs. You put all of those separate and very diverse elements together, and the potential for creating art or something that's wonderful, something that's different, something that's emotional. It's a synthesis of the best and the finest of all possible things you can put on stage. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, hi. This question's for one of the directors. Um, Mr. Levine brought up the uh, principle of no changes, alterations, or omissions without playwright's consent. Uh, when working with a playwright, how do you deal with the issue of stage directions? Me? Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I. Um, I pay very little attention to them uh, when I read the play, as a matter of fact. I try to avoid them. Uh, I used to, when I started uh, very young, before I would read any script, I'd get a black mark and just take all that out. And, uh, and then after I opened the show, I would go and buy another copy of the same script and try to see what it was that was there that I may have missed or whatever. Um, I don't need that challenge anymore. It's not nearly as much of a problem to me. So, but I try very hard to assume that the words are golden mm -hmm. and that any, any stage direction that in any way is organically important to those words belong to the playwright. But there are certain things about acting interpretations. Very often you'll read a script with a lot of adverbs. Uh, you know, she said this uh, excitedly or whatever. I, I, I try. I never see that. 
in any way, mm -hmm. or even business or blocking or whatever. I try to keep a creativity mm -hmm. that allows the production to be fresh. Now, the playwright, however, I think has every right to say, you're misinterpreting that scene, and it was right here, I put this in the script, and I will sometimes look and say, oh my God, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I, you know? but, but I don't find that too often that that is the case. Tom doesn't put anything in the script. I mean, Tom is so sparse. You do whatever you want, really. Yeah, I found that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no, great. It's, I think it's wonderful. Would you ask your question? Yeah, this is for John Driver. Um, Shogun was a miniseries and a best-selling novel. Who had the idea to make it into a musical? James Clavell, actually 15 years ago, uh, before it was made into a miniseries. Uh, after the book was completed, he the notion came to him, I don't know how or why, and he has lived with that dream for 15 years. How was it developed? Uh, over a long and tedious process. Uh, Sheldon and I were just talking, Sheldon was actually a, a approached uh, probably six or seven years ago to get involved in it before I was involved. Uh, and it's gone through, uh, there were several uh, lyricists and book people involved early on in the process who all had sort of uh, left or had a parting of the ways with the uh, various people involved. And about six years ago, I met the composer and uh, he put me together with James Clavell. And so in that, it's taken six years for us to develop the project. <laughs> we have time for just one more question. Um, to Sheldon Harnick, um, over the past 20 years, what are some of the changes you've seen in the different productions of the Rothschilds? Well, I haven't seen that many productions of the Rothschilds. I know it's been done uh, around the country occasionally, but I haven't seen them. Um, I can answer that in a different way yeah. and maybe sell a few tickets. <laughs> uh, when we closed the show in New York, Shortly after that, we had a California uh, tour coming up. And Michael Kidd had always felt that the show was too fat. So with the permission of the book writer Sherman Yellen, Michael and I sat down and we trimmed. We just went through the show and trimmed a great deal of fat. Uh, when it opened in California, it was a better show than it had been in New York. When Lonnie Price came up with the extraordinary idea of taking the five sons and having them play almost all of the male roles in the show so that the show could be done with 15 people instead of 40 people. Uh, when I learned that, I read through the script and realized it couldn't be done unless adjustments were made because there still would be impossible costume changes. I'm going to have to interrupt and say everybody has to go down, buy a ticket, and see <laughs> how the rest of it came out. And right. then we'll know exactly what he's talking about. Well, we made, we made additional trims uh, in the process so that that's it's the changes that I've seen, and it's never the tightest enough time, version. Never no. enough time to have all these questions answered. And for me, this has been one of the most fulfilling and knowledgeable of seminars that we've had. And the American Theatre Wing is indeed proud to be able to bring these people to the seminars. And incidentally, we are, as you know, a service organization, and sets of the seminars have been made by the American Theatre Wing to universities throughout the country for their use in their classrooms in the drama department. Thank you all for coming here. I'm Isabel Stevenson. <laughs>